She said, can you mention the color purple <laughs> in the podcast? Can you work purple into the podcast? Uh, and I was like, uh, sure, I'll, I'll remember it. I'll write it down so I remember it. And I never worked it in. So it's, you, you find a way to work the color purple in, into the, it, well, that would be me saying it. So I guess it doesn't work, but um, man, I dropped the ball on that. So that's hilarious. No, I, I can do it as a cold open. Yeah, it's just funny. It's it, I was like, it's so that's so funny. I was like, that would be fun. I'll, I'll work the color purple in there somehow. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 162. In this episode, we're talking with Vin Wynn about parenting children with Down syndrome. Vin Nguyen is a PhD student at McMaster Divinity College and has served as a pastor in different capacities for over 10 years. Team members on the episode from the two cities include myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. In this conversation with Vin Nguyen, we talk about Down syndrome, his experience parenting his daughter, Allie, who has Down syndrome, some of the lessons that he's learned along the way, and some of his theological insights and reflections on Down syndrome. This is a wonderful conversation, love chatting with Vin, and hearing some just heartbreaking, but also encouraging anecdotes and stories about Vin's experience with his daughter, Allie. And so hope you will enjoy this conversation. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Vin Nguyen. Well, Vin, welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on and, and inviting me to speak a little bit about this topic. And I look forward to our discussion. Looking forward to the discussion as well. So we we want to chat about parenting in particular uh, and, and talk about your daughter, Allie, who has Down syndrome. But as we begin this conversation, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and about your family? Well, let me start, I guess, by just saying as an individual, um, I come from a family of immigrants um, who have their own particular worldview. Uh, I grew up living pretty much in two different worlds, uh, Buddhists at home and Christianity at church. Um, So a lot of that um, has shaped how I have viewed um, life and, and even reading texts like the Bible and questioning um, things as I've grown up. And so um, that'll all actually relate somewhat to disability and the struggles I've had in my own personal family, immediate and and extended. Um, But maybe just to start off with some humor, I grew up around a bunch of Asian people. Naturally, I'm Vietnamese. My family's are all Vietnamese immigrants. And, you know, they all try to get me to marry an Asian woman. And so um, having been in that environment, no offense to any other Asian women, or I appreciate and love all Asian people, obviously, but um, I ran the complete opposite way. My wife is blonde hair, blue eyed from the South. You know, she um, she's not Asian at all. And so I've been married for 12 years now to my wife. And in 2014, we gave birth after years and years and years of trying um, to have kids. In fact, we were just on the borderline of scheduling appointments to get tested. We weren't actually sure we could have kids. Um, we now have three daughters, but um, our first daughter was born uh, and we were ecstatic. And then all of a sudden, you know, things took quite the turn um, for us from um, just being elated to being extremely down to the point of neither one of us able were able to function with some of the news that we got. So in 2014, uh, we found out that we were pregnant and uh, with our first daughter. Um, and in Louisiana, this is was new to us. This was strange. There were a lot of issues. Um, things weren't right. And the doctors kind of detected something was wrong internally. And so they had suggested suggested that we take um, a test to see if 
the heart condition. So there was no left side of Allie's heart. Mm. Um, when we went in to do all the, the sonograms and, and, and the tests and whatnot, and they said, your daughter, we're a little concerned. She doesn't have the left side of her heart. And so the prognosis quickly came. She has this rare condition called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, um, which means essentially they told us um, what will happen is, you know, your daughter, you'll give birth to your daughter. And then the rights after she's born, the right side of her heart will overwork and she'll have a heart attack and she'll die. Mm. And so, you know, what, what do you do with news like that? And so they suggested we take a test. Um, because heart conditions are often uh, related to people with Down syndrome. And so we took the test. And this is actually um, really startling because um, it's not like this all over the country, but in Louisiana, it is a legal law. Our doctor came back to us and said, your daughter has tested positive for Down syndrome. And I remember her asking us, she said, you know, now that we've taken this test, I know who you are. Um, I can just tell, and I hate to ask you this, but I need to ask you um, legally, since you took this test, would you like to abort hmm. your daughter? And so in Louisiana, there were, it's a matter of legal issue for doctors and practitioners, if you were to take this test, to ask you if you want to abort. So it says something about how people view life and the quality hmm. of life and what it means to be a person or to belong in society right off the bat. Of course, we were startled. We didn't know this was even a, a thing, you know, to be asked. Um, so that said something right off the bat. Um, we said, of course, you know, obviously, of course not in our worldview. Um, we don't need to do that. So um, we continued to have our baby and uh, her heart continued to have issues. There was um, a, a massive procedure. At this time, I was in seminary. And um, couldn't go to work. I could barely function in classes. And I remember all the professors just really shifting into pastoral mode for me. Um, we would go on walks and they would stop and pray for us as we walked um, along the paths of New Orleans Seminary at night. And um, they would really just, they were kind of like the balm to our soul, you know, during that time. And um I remember one particular professor showed up, he, he got the news and I worked for him as his teaching assistant and his name's Craig Price and, and Craig called me and said, hey, can I come over? And I said, uh, sure. And, you know, it's strange, you know, how, how you kind of just don't know how you're going to respond to the news of death and, and a kid that you've been longing for. I kind of imagine like, man, is this what Abraham felt like? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, is this, you know what happens when you want something so badly and something you've always longed for, and now it's going to be taken away from you. And Craig came over and I'll never forget it. I was waiting on all of his years of wisdom and pastoral experience and seminary teaching to say something like, say something, make it, make, make the hurt and the stuff go away. You know, and he said nothing for nearly an hour and a half. He just sat there and he wept. And um, anyway, on the backside later on, when I went back to, to speak with him, I said, Hey, Craig, you know, back at that time when you were sitting in our apartment and, and, and just helping us, why didn't you say anything? Like, why did now that Allie's okay, I'm just curious. Why didn't you say something, make it better? And I remember him saying something very profound and he looked at me and he said, with tears in his tears in his eyes. And he said, well, what could I have said? What could I have said to make it better? I don't understand. There's, you know, there's nothing that I could have said. I just wanted to let you know that I was here and I wanted to just to be there for you guys. And through a human agent in a very profound way, it was almost like a lived experience of the presence of God. Not that Craig would identify as that or anything but like that, but human presence in the, in times of hurt and pain and, and need, um, can function, I think, in that way where you can sense God's presence through his people. And that was really profound for us, you know, to get through that time. Um, and all, her story is quite long. Allie's story is quite long of all the things she went through. She um, ended up, the left side of her heart formed. It was slightly smaller than the right. But, you know, even the attending doctor said, I, 
she looked at us and she said, are you and your wife praying people? I'm not religious, but are you praying people? And we said, yes, you have no idea. We have like 12 states and like seven countries praying for her right now. People from all over the world. It's crazy. She said, well, I'm not religious and I don't know prayer works, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it because in 20 years of medicine, I've never seen anything like this. Wow. And she's a heart doctor. And so there was this miracle that happened, this mm. almost modern day miracle that the doctors couldn't explain. So Allie was born. And then after she was born, she had a whole slew of other issues and fought for her life for a couple, you know, about a month there. And um, she had a different issue where she lost a lot of her blood into her mom. She only had 40% of the blood in her body when she was born. So she was pale white. They, as soon as we saw her, she was out, they rushed her out of the room and we're doing transfusions and all sorts of stuff. But um, now she's alive, she's healthy. And, um, you know, you look back and you couldn't even tell anything was wrong with her. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's quite a long story. It was quite a long journey, but um, we have learned an immense amount of things about our faith, about mm. life, mm. about just how the world perceives mm. people with disabilities. Um, just more, you know, at least broadly, especially with the abortion question. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's been quite a journey. I, it's been a lot of learning and a lot of growing and we're still doing all that, you know, mm. with Allie still teaching us more about life today than we'll probably ever be able to teach her. But um, there are also a lot of myths, which I can get into too, about Down syndrome and, and her personality and her niceness or not so niceness, you know, and all the myths <laughs> that go along with that. So, well, well, Vin, thank you so much. That was so wonderful and so powerful and just uh, appreciate you sharing all of that with us and definitely want to get into those, those issues that you just raised there. Would love to hear a bit about the lessons that you've learned along the way uh, from your daughter, Allie, some things that she has taught you and, and your wife. Yeah, probably the, on a positive side, the most um, interesting thing that Allie has taught me is that she really doesn't seem to have the prejudices that we have, whether she does or not internally, they're not overtly expressed, right? They're not obvious, and I'll give you an example. So Allie, um, at my father-in-law's church, he has a smaller church in, in, uh, um, in the town we grew up in, uh, mostly with elderly people. But, you know, you have people that come in with polos and, and, and people that come in um, like myself, dressed in cardigans and <laughs> uh, when I visit. And you have uh, a person in the back who has long hair, uh, long hair tattoos all over the place and was part of a biker gang. Uh, but Allie, and, and to my own shame and, and self-admission, um, Allie doesn't see people with prejudice. She will. She was the handshaker. She was the greeter at, at every church we've served at. Um, the church we served at New Orleans, uh, my father-in-law's church, it didn't matter whether you wore a suit and tie to church or if you came in with a leather jacket and tattoos with long hair and a ponytail, right? Um, she's going to greet you and shake your hand um, without that prejudice. Where even myself, who you know, I've been in, I've been pastoring in different capacities for ten years. You know, there are some people. Uh, I'm going to be careful. You can you can publish this if you want, but you know, there are some people you shake hands with, and other people you shake hands with and move along a little quicker, and don't have that extended conversation with. You know, because um, you know you're just like I, I don't know about this person. So I have a prejudice that I say I'm like I don't know how to feel about this person. Are you, uh, you know, you just look different than everyone else right now, and I don't know if I can have a long conversation with you. Maybe we set up a meeting where Allie will sit there. Doesn't matter. She she's going to have an extended conversation with you as long as you want to talk to her. And I thought to myself, man, how much better of a pastor would I be if I didn't have those prejudices, those preconceived notions about people? And, you know, I, I could see people for as people first, which is also why, you know, it, I, I should mention that I deeply appreciated when you introduced um, 
Allie's, you know, you said I have a a daughter who has Down syndrome as opposed to my Down syndrome daughter. That kind of syntax is actually really significant um, in the community because one puts the condition before the person and the other puts the person before the condition. So she's not a Down syndrome person. She's a person who has Down syndrome. And personhood is important and, and it's very critical in disability studies to look at people with disabilities. Um, as people first, you know, and so Allie does that naturally. She she sees people as people and nothing else. So that's probably one of the greatest things um, that she has taught me. She has also taught me that it doesn't matter <laughs> who you are or how you're born. Um, every person has a wide range of emotions and feelings, and I think sometimes as able-bodied people, we kind of attach different feelings or, or expressions to a condition. Um, you know, they don't know how to express themselves. So they lash out, for example. But how different is that than any other person who's frustrated lashing out in different ways? Or they don't have self-control. They can't communicate. In many cases, I wouldn't say for all, but if we listened a little close, a little bit more and and, and tuned in, we'd find out that they communicate just fine. We're just not listening to how they're communicating. We're already attributing it to a condition as opposed to just this is how they respond like any other person would respond. And so, yeah, I'm big into learning more about what it means to be a person. You know, and Allie, Allie teaches me a lot about that. That's beautiful. I, I love that. Love that example of the non-prejudiced outlook on things and um, your reflections on that as well. Uh, I, I'm curious, since you mentioned that there's a, a lot of myths that you also would like to dispel, I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us a bit about some of those. Well, particularly as it relates to Down syndrome, that's that's where I'm I'm most closely tied to, right, is the, the most common one is that they have the, the extra chromosome, right? So that, that extra chromosome is sometimes referred to as the happy chromosome. So, and every time I see that, I just want to tell the person, I will loan my daughter to you for a day, if you would like, you know, to, to help you um, reorient your thinking on that. Um, because, you know, I, I think there are already some frameworks just that idea that people with Down syndrome have a happier disposition already in some way prejudices you to see them that way when you encounter a person with Down syndrome. And so you come up to them and you are actually naturally more happy in how you interact with them. And so they're naturally responding in a more happy manner, right? You're not interact. You're already interacting with them in a way that you have thought about in your head about who they are. They could be having a bad day and, you know, you would just go, oh, no, not today, Allie, and you just move on. You don't think twice about it. But um, in reality, Allie has such a large range of emotions. In fact, right now she's like a, well, she's eight, but cognitively she's like three or four. So we we kind of have her in that three-nager stage um, where she's very feisty. Like she just knows everything, very independent, you know, bossy and, and whatnot. So the nice, the myth of being nice should be, is probably the easiest one to dispel. There are a bunch of others, you know, like they don't live very long. And so abortion becomes a, a, a factor because their quality of life is low. But, um, you know, we aren't where we were 20 years ago. 20 years ago, such an idea, I think, might be understandable. I had a, and back then I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I was just a, a kid, but my friend's aunt, one of my best friends growing up, his aunt had Down syndrome. But back then there weren't all the programs and all the the help um, and avenues of helping people with Down syndrome progress as there are today. So my friend's aunt, you know, she would get on a bus, go to work, sort screws for 10 cents a screw or some, some low pay and then come home. And then she would go in her room and just be locked in her room. And she would listen to music until dinner time, get out, eat dinner, go back to her room, sit in her room and, and, and listen to music. 
um, there wasn't an inclusive element into everyday life. There wasn't, it was more of an us, them kind of framework because people didn't know how to interact and people didn't know how to deal with it 20 years ago. Um, whereas, so, well, you know, I think that has kind of bled over in some ways to modern, to even present day where, you know, we can do certain things, they can't do certain things. So this idea of inclusion and what that looks like um, is a question. It was very exclusive, I think. I could be wrong, you know, but it, it seemed, at least in my experience, two decades ago, exclusion was more predominant because people are still learning. But um, today, inclusion, there are a lot of people working towards inclusion and helping people with all sorts of disabilities, even Down syndrome, um, you know, interact and in, in, in speech therapy. And um, Allie goes to four therapies a week and, you know, we we interact just fine. There is a language barrier, no doubt. Um, I had a, a good conversation with Amos Young uh, at one point on this. And, you know, if you live with the person, you actually understand the language. But if you don't live with the person, there's obviously some barrier. Um, and so there is something to be said in the inclusion conversation about that. If you want to understand the, a person who has a disability, it requires some effort. Um, you know, it can't just be uh, a sort of, we give you an avenue to come be a part of us without us actually taking some time to get into your world. We invite you into our world. That's that's the way this tends to work, right, with inclusion. We invite you into our space and our world, um, but we don't take the time to understand your world and, and, what, and how you see it. And so there's a lot of listening and effort that has to go into that. Um, but I think, yeah, one of the myths is they don't live, you know, they don't live very long, but, you know, people with Down syndrome are living quite long now. The only countries where they're not living long are the ones that are eradicating, you know, Down syndrome, and that's happening. There's, you know, um, so, yeah, um, I think another one is, you know, they, people with Down syndrome can't do things other people do. Okay, well, I'm five seven. I can't dunk a basketball, right? So, um, you know, is that disabling to me because I can't play in the NBA? Like, we all have limitations of some sort. So we need to reframe what we mean when we talk about limitations. Um, we're all finite beings, and we all have different limitations. And so, yeah, of course, people with different disabilities have limitations. But again, it's not our job to put those limitations on them. It's our job to help them get to the potential that they can get to, right? So um, at least to help them along. And, and, and that's what it means to be inclusive. I run a, um, I know we're trying to talk about myths and stuff, but disability ministry in the church is a, a big thing that I'm passionate about. And so um, I run a a pretty, I don't know, it, it's decently, it, it's growing pretty rapidly, a, a sports program here on Grand Island. Um, and I, I don't separate kids who have disabilities, uh, let's just neurotypical from, you know, um, from atypical, you know, or neurodivergent kids. Um, I put them all together and I make them function together and, and work together. And, um, that's part of it, right? It, there's this saying in at least the Down syndrome community, I'm sure, amongst all disability communities probably has a similar sentiment where we spend a lot of time um, teaching our kids how to interact with society, but we don't really spend that much time teaching society how to interact with our kids. And one way you do that is to quit separating people, right? Our space, your space. Um, and, and, and no, no, uh, I say this not as something that is um, bad against the church I'm currently serving in, but that's what led us to that church is that they had a disability ministry. But a lot of churches with disability ministries, what that means is we have a space for your child. And so there's a room that has different sensory things or maybe different dim lightings or soft furniture, but it's still, and it's not anyone's fault because everyone's trying to learn how to do this. Um, but one of the things that I'm trying to help churches understand is that it that causes a division. It shouldn't be a their space, our space. 
right? Because, oh, well, they can't be in worship with us because they might disrupt the worship service. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, um, for me, I, I just think about that and I go, well, maybe your service needs to be disrupted if that's where your heart is at, right? Maybe there is a disruption that needs to happen. Or they can't be out here because they may have a meltdown and we don't have help. Um, and so I think churches are trying, but to separate and not include and integrate is not helpful, in my opinion. I like the idea of having a room where, you know, if someone gets overstimulated, they can we can take them to. But as soon as possible, you try to get people to interact again. Um, that's the only way we allow people to see people as people and not people who have conditions and, and, and impairments. Yeah, on that point about inclusivity and the different things that you've uh, you've you've seen and and tried to implement with some uh, ministries at at your church, where where have you seen the church? Um, you know, in, in, personally, in terms of your your family's uh, experience, where have you seen the church um, get it right and perhaps get it wrong, and as some kind of like lessons learned along the way? Yeah, I think, you know, to be fair to churches who are trying to figure out uh, some framework or avenue to accommodate people with disabilities, um, I think the fact that people acknowledge there needs to be something, right, um, is good. Um, Having more awareness of making sure you have bathroom stalls that are wider so it can accommodate for people who are in wheelchairs having accessible ramps right for um and whether you have a person with disability or not but if a person were to show up you know it shows that you're in very basic ways that your church has um, some sort of care you know beyond just the simple fact that oh yeah we have a blue square parking space for you if you broke your leg you know, like um, we we actually care about people um, who have different impairments and disabilities, and 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 we try to accommodate that. I think that's one way churches um, are starting to do it well. We're starting to see more ramps and more avenues of access, uh, which is helpful. Um, I think also coming up with programs is helpful. Although you know, I know people are working on the literature is very slim, but. Um, you know, Amos Young has obviously written on it. Chris, um, I'm not even sure how to say his last name, Holshoff, maybe, um, just recently came out with a book, um, Jesus Disability. It's a very practical book for the church, a guide to creating a, an inclusive church uh, is the subtitle to that. And so I think there are, are people working in the avenues of helping um, churches create avenues of inclusivity. Um, so those things I think are, are being done well is that there is an attempt. There's a, a greater attempt in today's um, society than there was, let's say, two decades ago, right? So those things are done well. Um, where I don't think it's done very well is, again, the integration thing. People, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to integrate. Do I have enough buddies or people to shadow um, in case something does go wrong? Is Are there enough volunteers? Um, and we, what happens tends to happen is you use those things as excuses. Um, you know, I, I think it's easy to couch under, well, I don't have a volunteer for this person today. So, you know, they have to either stay with their parents or they have to go to this room or whatnot. And we don't even give them a shot to operate on their own. Uh, of course, some people can, and some people can't, but, um, you know, I think, a little bit more effort in that. I don't think, I don't think we're all the way succeeding. I can't speak for every church. I'm really speaking anecdotally um, from what I've observed. Um, But that's one, one thing. And then um, just involving people with disabilities in everyday activities. Why can't there be a person who has a disability, you know, whether um, a person with down syndrome or, you know, physical or mental or, whatever other kind, why can't they be door greeters? Why can't they pass an offering plate? Why can't um, they participate in the the liturgy or, you know, whatever tradition you come from? Why can't they participate in the actual service? Um, and why can't we equip people with disabilities in that way? And so I don't see that happening very much. Uh, it's usually, you know, couched under deaconesses or deacons or um, whatnot to serve the church. But 
Um, that's another question. Why can't we employ people with disabilities to be in leadership positions? Um, is there something innate about them that doesn't allow them to, to have the qualities of what we've defined to be leaders or servants um, or whatnot? Um, because to my knowledge, I don't see too many people with disabilities sitting on elder boards or deacon boards or decision-making boards or anything like that, you know? And so I think those are avenues that we should look at, you know, because um, oftentimes you have um, able-bodied people making the decisions for people with disabilities, but maybe you should in invite them to the table and allow them to have a voice in the matter and, and a, in a, you know, a decision-making role. Um, and perhaps that is a good way forward in churches. So I would like to see more of that. Yeah, thanks for that, Vin. And, we, you know, with some of the matters of inclusion uh, and participation, leadership even, that you were stressing there, um, you know, one of the kind of central aspects of liturgy are the rituals that we participate in, you know, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist and baptism. And in some settings, there's there's controversy over the participation in these rituals by, by people who have an intellectual or developmental disability. Can you talk us through like how to navigate that, that question? Yeah. I, as a, a pastor in, in, uh, a mostly Baptist settings. So that's from the setting I'll have to speak from, right? So um, there are a lot of different issues that come, I mean, even disabilities aside, there are questions surrounding who can participate in communion. And, um, you know, in Baptist life, there's a big conversation on what this nebulous idea of an age of accountability is or something like that for um, baptism. Uh, and, you know, who really determines that? In in Baptist settings, in my experience, it tends to be we ask you a few questions and then we determine whether you're ready to participate in communion or baptism. Uh, right. And so. But then what you find is a lot of the kids or children or young folks or even teenagers who answered yes and then start participating in communion or or have been baptized run into some crisis in their life where they doubt or question or wonder or um you know for whatever reason if they're actually saved um if they're actually allowed to participate in these things or they wrestle with these tensions in their life and so you know i think that's one of the the rubs right like who determines um, who gets to participate and, and what that looks like? Because a lot of times I think it's the the the, per the person who's having a conversation with them, their longing or desire for a person in Baptist life to be saved or whatnot determines whether you're ready. Um, but then again, I say this carefully, but in my tradition, uh, you know, you don't you just kind of mention what these elements signify and mean, and then explain who can participate, but you don't really police who participates as some other traditions do. Right. I remember being a part of uh, an Anglican service once where if you were not, uh, uh, it was a funeral and you, you know, you would walk towards, and I, I think I'm a closet Anglican anyway, but don't tell my Baptist friends, I, <laughs> you, um, whatever that means, but I, I, you know, you would walk forward and if you, um, I, I think they made us cross our arms like this um, and not participate in communion. Um, and I've had similar experiences in Catholic churches. Um, I've actually been told in Catholic churches, you can't participate um, in communion. And so someone else tends to decide who can and who can't. But in that sense, it almost to me seems like salvation or a person's experience is, is belongs to someone else, some other determiner. Um, and, you know, that bleeds over into people with disabilities because we look at them as almost either infants or intellectually incapable, unable to express um, where they are in their relationship with the Lord. Um, but internally, you know, 
I can't tell what's going on in the life of a person. And so I think one of the ways it ties into baptism is in Baptist life, we just let the, we let people with disabilities, you know, whether it's, it's a, um, a person with Down syndrome or a person who has autism or a mental or, or, or whatever disability who um, can't make a conscious decision, we just couch it under God has grace for those people and we just let them participate. I, and that's in my experience, what I see. Um, but um, my own daughter has signified different. She um, sings songs. She, um, the blessing is one of her favorite songs and she requests it all the time and she sings it louder than anyone else right so who am i to say what's going on in her life and her heart and how god wants to reach and minister to a person in fact i remember starkly when i was when ali before ali was born i was terrified and i was leading i was a, a youth minister at the time and it was there was a citywide meeting and you know all the pastors had to go up front and there was like an altar call of sorts and, and all these teenagers were coming forward and I was weeping because I was thinking to myself, I'm about to, my daughter is, her life is on the line. I'm trying to minister to kids, but I'm not in a great mental place. And I, I, I remember I closed my eyes and I just started praying like, Lord, just let me be a tool or, or be effective in ministry right now to these kids that are here um, help me to put aside, you know, these these tensions and, and the, this pain in my heart for just a moment. And the second I opened my eyes, directly in front of me, in the very front row, was a young man who had Down syndrome. And he's singing at the top of his lungs, just belting it out with no care in the world. And it was almost like the good Lord above was just telling me, you're going to be fine. You're going to be good and your daughter is going to be good. And you don't have to worry about our salvation. Look at him. He's worshiping louder than all the other kids in the building. And so, you know, in that very moment, I just remembered, yeah, it's going to be fine. And she's going, if she's going to have a faith, it will be because we do, we raise her in the setting and she can make that decision on her own. And, and, you know, this kid's worshiping. Who's to say he can't participate in communion or baptism? Like, you know, he's doing more than most people do on a Sunday morning. So, um, yeah, I, I think we have to be a little bit more intentional when it comes to communion and baptism in observing, you know, maybe it's a catechism sort. I don't know. I don't know how it works itself out. Maybe we, we walk through things with them, but, um, I think we start at the place where we really do let people with disabilities and how they express their life, maybe, um, let that be the determiner and not answering some set of questions or some series of questions. Um, because I'm not, you know, I, I can't say I'm an expert on it, but if that's your expectation, then that's an expectation that you almost know a person with, uh, who's not a neurotypical person is not going to be able to accomplish. It's a task that they may not accomplish, but then to exclude them from, the sacraments of the church on those grounds um as a pastor i don't want to answer to god for that you know i want to let them participate on the on their own grounds based on hey you know i i i don't know i don't know what's going on in the heart but i know whatever is inside there is being expressed and that that to me is is good enough you know mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we can get into soteriology and salvation and how that all looks and ruffle some feathers, but on a very practical level, um, my daughter blesses my life with how she worships every day. Mm -hmm. She's not, you know, she doesn't, uh, she hasn't been baptized in the Baptist tradition. She doesn't participate in communion, but, um, you know, I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that quite a bit. Thank you for for sharing that, and that's that's a beautiful story um, of that experience that you had. Um, since we're talking about salvation, I was thinking as a final question um, to hear some of your reflections on hope and eschatology in relation to Down syndrome. 
you mentioned Amos Young earlier. Amos Young has a book called Theology and Down Syndrome, as you know, in which he argues that when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to resurrection, when it comes to new life and the new creation, that Down syndrome will will persist. Uh, otherwise, the person might be eradicated. And I'm just curious about your thoughts about that as you think about Down syndrome and eschatology. Yeah, um, I it's been a while since I a few years since I've read Amos's work on that, but I do recall um, that conversation, and I do know there's an article that rebuts that pretty heavily, um, and I'll have to track that down. That that view that uh, there's some continuity between this world and the next world, uh, whatever that may look like. Um, I have quite a few thoughts on that. In fact, um, I one of the papers I had written to present at a conference um, is on this very idea of what the resurrection life looks like um, for people with with disabilities. And um, you know, I I I tend to believe there will be continuity. You know, I, at first, let me preface by saying um, that we should start with saying we don't really know <laughs> what it's going to look like. Um, we can only speculate. Um, but as far as it, there being some continuity, I've, I've thought about it from a couple different angles. One, there's the fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, and being knitted together in um, your mother's womb. So, Either I have to admit that maybe God made some sort of mistake and is undoing a mistake that he made in the new world, which seems quite inconsistent and doesn't work theologically um, against his his nature and his character. Um, if I maintain that there's no continuity, then um, I have to read that passage a little bit differently and, and reinterpret that passage, right? Um, because that's not a sin thing. That's not something generated from a person's sin or attributed to sin or original sin that, that some condition is a result of the fall in some way, which a lot of people believe, you know, I have family that believes that, 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 you know, down syndrome is, is one of the effects, uh, of the fall. And, you know, and, and so I think on, on the one hand, to maintain that there's no continuity in a person's uh, identity. Um, because, for example, I, I find Down syndrome to be an in intimate part of Allie's identity. Um, and I can't imagine her in any other way. If you took it away from her, I wouldn't recognize her. She'd be a completely different person. And so her personhood gets diminished. And so to say it doesn't continue, if we are in this new world able to recognize each other, how would I recognize her? Um, on the other hand, the sin problem and attaching it to sin, you know, one might begin by asking, well, a lot of people are having children. It's a, if it's a result of the fall, why not someone who's not following the Lord? Why not, why not sin that way? If a person who is like in our family, um, doing ministry and, and surrendering our life to to God's call, you know, you might say it's something like a a thorn in the flesh or, you know, misinterpreted passage, something like that, that this is something, some burden we have to bear um, for following Christ and, you know, a way that God's going to show his strength and our weakness or however you want to read that verse in light of disability, which I, you know, I wouldn't read it that way, but um, I know people who have and people have tried to use that verse to tell me, you know, this is God, something God's given you or whatever. Um, I, to do that would be, I, I think to me, to attach it to sin would be to say, then why, how is God selective in that process on who gets a particular disability and who doesn't? So, you know, there, in, in going into the new, like the new creation, I think the most important thing for me is that regardless of what disability a person has, we have to treat people as persons first. You treat them in this world how you would expect to treat them in the world to come, how you would expect the world to come, you know, to, when there are no, there's no pain or no tears or 
no suffering um, in that sort. But it's not an erasure. It's not a a, a, a taking away of some condition. Um, and you know, when I was researching this, I think it's more we've mapped our understanding of what a person is supposed to look or be like um, into the new creation. And I think Jesus dispels a lot of this. You know, for example, um, Bartimaeus and the man that's, you know, on the road, like when he's, when he has this cry in Mark chapter eight, um, Lord have mercy on me. And all the surrounding people are telling him, be quiet. Don't bother him. Like, okay. So now, you know, who you are as a person is actually your personal identity comes second to social identity. The, the society is determining who you are and who can talk and who can't talk and who's in and who's out. Right. So um, personal identity begins to be lost. And so already, even in the biblical text, we see personal personal identity being something that is challenged. Um, in John 5, for example, um, the paralytic, um, he's almost just given, given himself into the fact of what people thought about him. I try to get to the pool, but people jump over me and, and they go over me and they get in there first, right? After Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, he's already given up. This is, this is how people, people aren't giving me another look. They're not helping me. They're just concerned about themselves. And that essentially seems like when you read a lot of these narratives that have people with disabilities in them, it, it seems to be a, there is some construct where society has formed the identity of these people more and, and it's their own personal identity is lost somewhere in that. And because that's the case, we tend to do that in today's society where we try to shape or or reshape or map people to fit into our world in the way that we view it. And then what we do then is we go, okay, so in the new world, everything looks like this. Um, in the new creation, everything looks like this. You know, all these things become new. Um, but to me, that's that's just a strip of who God's created people to be. Um, uh, and I don't know that I am comfortable saying that God made a mistake in Ali's life or any other person's life that I think they are people first and, you know, can contribute to society in, in their own ways. And we often try to reshape people, um, sometimes inadvertently. Uh, but I think it's more beneficial to spend a lot more time listening. Um, and another example I, I tend to think of is even though I don't think race is, is tied to disability, but in my own life, for example, um, People had, as a young man walking to school in a very impoverished part um, of the country, um, I grew up in a city called Belleville, Illinois, which is outside of East St. Louis, borderline touches it. And East St. Louis, if you don't know, is always in like the top five murder capitals of the country. And I dealt with a lot of racism. I, I've, I've been kicked at. I've been spat at. I remember hiding under playground structures where people spit through the little wooden slats and drop spit on me while I was waiting on the bus. So I'd hide. I remember being very ashamed of being Asian. Why couldn't I be born white um, or some different race where I don't have to experience or face um, this from, from my friends and from peers and from people around me and, and no one to defend you, right? You're kind of defenseless in those situations. And um, so for me to say, okay, well, if it's attributed to how people treat or treat one another, then at some point you're going to erase my Asianness in the new world to where everyone gets along and there's no more, you know, maltreatment or level of um, some imbalance in, in, in social norms or, or fitting in or inclusion. Um, and I think in some ways it kind of relates to that, right? Like we look at people with disabilities based on what they can't do as opposed to what they can do. Um, and so, you know, we have some idea in the new world that there's going to be some erasure or some perfection. And I, I kind of lean with Amos Young. I think there's a continuity, how it looks, what it looks like. I, I don't know. Um, but I do think we value people in their personhood and their identity first. Um, and that doesn't get removed. Um, so 
I, I know it, it, it's tough. You know, I've, I don't know if I shared, but my wife is, she, I used, we used to not get along. <laughs> we, um, she, she was like the perfect church girl, like just always had her Bible. And I'm like this kid from the streets. I'm like, no one's like that. No one's that perfect. No one's, no one's as nice as you. No one reads their Bible that religiously. No one actually brings their Bible to youth group. Right. Um, and I've never, ever in my life heard her say a curse word up until Allie was born. And then I was like, she came into the house one day, really upset. She'd went to the supermarket and, and came back with groceries and she was in tears. And, and I said, wait, well, you have my, what happened? And I remembered, you know, she, she just loudly said some a-hole at tops, which is the local grocery store, um, looked at Allie and, and asked, me if she was retarded because she looks retarded and I could tell something was wrong with her by just looking at her. And fortunately I was like, okay, I'm about to lose my job. Do I need to go to the supermarket and address the person? And she said, no, I've, uh, you know, it made me feel better that some mom heard it. And she went and apparently lit this guy up for 10 minutes, but there is already this perception, this almost social ranking of inferior, superior, um, this and you know I I think until we begin to help people understand that the kingdom of God is not about that it 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 is about Him coming to free those who are oppressed. It's not an undoing, but it's it's not an undoing of a person. It's an undoing of what we've made it, what we've turned it into. And so, yeah, I think. I'm with Amos on this one that there is continuity in the new world, but it's, you know, it's not a transformation of the person. It's the transformation of how we see people. That is a, that is a great, great word and a great, great framing for it. And thinking about transforming the way we see, uh, see other people and see diversity of, of ability. And, and that, that I think is a, is a great way of, of, of framing it. Certainly ableism will be done okay. away with in the new creation. And that, that's a, that's a beautiful word. So thank you so much, Vin, for, for joining us and sharing uh, all of your thoughts and telling us um, about your wonderful daughter, Allie, and the ways in which you have grown uh, as a person. Uh, as a result of, of parenting her and just really appreciate having you on the podcast. Yeah. I appreciate you having me, John. You know, obviously I'm following a, a great line of academic discussion, but it's good to be able to share a little bit of my pastoral sensitivities and God's gift to me in Allie, you know, mm-hmm. she, she is God's gift to me and um, I, I needed it. You know, I probably perceived the world in a way that I shouldn't have perceived it. And he he gave me Allie to allow me to, um, see not only the world, but perhaps even what the kingdom of God should look like, you know, from, from, from that point of view. So thanks for having me.